Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. We're in episode four of the Matthew series as we continue to go through the Bible in a biblical year, which will be longer. The New Testament in a biblical year. I still can't get that right. Anyway, Rob, how's it going? I see that you're wearing a Raiders uh, sweatshirt today. Uh, not quite. Well, I, we, oh, we've been yeah. fleecing. Raiders all, West. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Raiders West. There you go. We've been stealing yeah. all your coaching staff. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so let's get into this. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Sermon on the Mount now and, and putting that in context. Remind us why we need to read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in light of the kingdom of God and how there's, those are connected. We're going to delve into the Sermon on the Mount tonight now in some detail. Hopefully we've laid a foundation of what the context of Matthew's gospel, telling us the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and all that. The theme of this sermon is the kingdom of God. If we can't impress enough, the number one topic of Jesus was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was present in with the coming of Jesus, remains present through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. So we need to understand what the kingdom of God's about. Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming, repent, the kingdom of God is near, which in Matthew's gospel appears in chapter 4, verse 17. We read last time, Matthew 4, 23 and 9, 35, it's kind of form an inclusio around what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that, hey, if it includes 9, 35, it means the Sermon on the Mount includes chapters 8 and 9 also, and we discussed that last time. And what 4, 23 and 9, 35 say is Jesus is teaching in all of Galilee and preaching about the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus begins his ministry by saying the kingdom of God is near. Then the sermon of what we call Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, at least the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. is framed by reference to the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching this. And then when you look at the Sermon on the Mount itself, it begins with the, what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes begin, the first one and the last one are framed with, and they will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the sermon ends with Jesus' concern about who gets to enter the kingdom of God. And to enter it is, is indeed eternal life. So the frame of this whole sermon is about the nature of the kingdom of God, which is the centrality, the central message of Jesus' teaching. Okay, so then in light of that, what do you think some of the weaknesses or maybe one of the weaknesses of how today we, how we approach uh, the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, I think, you know, we talked before about how we Americans especially take everything about my personal righteousness and my personal piety. And therefore, you know, okay, I'm blessed if I'm poor in spirit. And that's all it's about is my, my personal attitude. We've talked about that enough. The real thing about the kingdom of God and about the teaching of Jesus that I don't think is often stressed enough is, is how revolutionary Jesus was. The people of Jesus' day, they wanted freedom from oppression. They wanted freedom from Roman occupation. They, they wanted this personal uh, liberation. And Jesus is like, okay, it's here and I'm bringing it, but not the way you think. In fact, you heard that it was said, you know, that you'll love your neighbor. Well, I said to you, you know, love your enemies and pray mm-hmm. for those who persecute you. This is the way you bring in a revolution in Jesus. I'm not sure I really want to be part of it. So when you look at the Beatitudes, then you look at them as not just this upside downness, which is very true, but we we throw it out there and then we don't understand the significance of it. In the kingdoms of the world, it's the wealthy, the powerful, the, the movers and shakers that are the ones who are blessed. And Jesus says, no, guess what? It's the meek who are blessed. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, Jesus, if we look at things carefully, the meek are not actually blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. No, actually, they're not blessed, Jesus. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. Those people are not blessed. But in Jesus' answer is, yes, they are. And evil is going to be defeated. The kingdom of God is going to be established, but it's not going to come through military victory. It's going to come by, well, turning the cheek and loving your enemies. And you know what? I want you to treat others the way you want them to treat you. So guess right. Get ready for this. It's not going to be easy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking back to, um, I know John Stott wrote a little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you'd have gone through that yeah. or seen it. And, and he uses the term um, countercultural. Like th- this is what, what it's teaching is, is we're going to be a countercultural people. And it, it's not one of those countercultural things in, in theory. Right. Like we'll be this until you get to this point and then you could kick into defense mode or then you could kick into whatever mode. It's like, no, this is truly countercultural. Like yes. You go against the way the culture is uh, telling you to do it and expects you to do it, even to the point of ultimate shame that you would receive. Yes. But let me make a note here. This is going to upset some. Um, that's okay. 
I, when I hear countercultural in my context of where I was raised, which is similar mm-hmm. to yours, mm-hmm. I hear of, well, we're countercultural because I don't believe in that wicked theory of evolution. And we're countercultural because I don't believe in gays and lesbians and da 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 da. And I'm countercultural because I homeschool my kids. And I'm countercultural because I vote for this political party. Well, and I, let's even go consumerism. I'm countercultural because I wear Christian t shirts. You know, or in, in all that kind of stuff, like oh, I have. The I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like no, that's no. He's talking about weeping mm-hmm. and mourning and grieving at injustices, and and the tradition I was raised in was like, well, when you see war happening, we're actually pretty excited about it because I mean, mm-hmm. nothing's gonna mm-hmm. you know, gonna happen. It's like no, no, grieving at these things and weeping and and being pure at heart and and seeking after God's face at, at all costs. And oh, by the way, yeah, it may very well cost you your, your clothing and your food. And why do you worry about those things? That's the Sermon on Why do you worry about those things? If God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive and tomorrow's from the fire, will he not so much more care for you, O men of little faith? Hmm. Yeah, that jargon, I think, is thrown around too much in our church without the real meaning of it. I think the bitingness behind it, the yeah. revolutionariness behind it. So you said last week that the Sermon on the Mount is the law for the New Testament people of God. Uh, and, and I thank God that the Old Testament law isn't our law because I really like going to crab feeds and stuff, right? But <laughs> could you explain what you mean by that this is the law for God's people? Yeah, it's, it's not the law in the sense of this is what we must do to inherit eternal life. And that's the way we often think about it. Mm-hmm. Instead, what Jesus is saying is this is who kingdom people are. And this is what kingdom people do. So for the Jewish world, membership in the kingdom was defined by, well, faithfulness to the Torah, and it usually manifested in three different areas, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath keeping. And Mm -hmm. Sabbath keeping, of course, means all the the, the religious Mm -hmm. festivals. And circumcision was not a defining characteristic uh, characteristic of Jewish people only, because it was practiced in other parts of the world, but it was still a definable characteristic of of who we are. This is how you gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus comes along and says, look, I want mercy and not sacrifice, as Hosea 6, 6 says. Mm-hmm. And I want you to repent. John the Baptist kind of comes along and challenges them saying, look, I hope you guys understand just being a descendant of Abraham is not good enough. And we'll see this in the gospel. Luke even says, because God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. It's this distinction of this is what kingdom of God people look like. And that is their hearts have been transformed, as we mentioned last week. And not just these outward expressions of the law. Mm-hmm. And along with that, we talked about how the law also isn't this unachievable, yeah, like hypothetical thing that's out there. It's like, no, this is this is who. When you say that, it's this is who the kingdom people are and what the kingdom people do. In reality, this is what we strive to do. It's not just, it's not merely the ideal, even though it is the ideal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when Jesus says, "I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I actually came to fulfill them." How does the Sermon on the Mount connect with the prophets of the Old Testament? Yeah, this is a huge one now. So, and I wrote a blog on this a while ago. Maybe I'll, I'll attach the um, show notes. A couple of the, a couple yeah. of the posts in, in the show notes there. So, the Old Testament is full, like abundantly full, of all these statements about God desiring justice and righteousness. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a young man, by the way, you know, we used to sing the "Oh, He has shown me, Oh man." I won't sing anymore. No, please, um, please, please keep yeah, singing. Let's do yeah. karaoke night at the tournament. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, <laughs> what is good and what the Lord requires of the right, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with that God. Yeah. We, we used to sing the song, but then you talk about justice and we just, we never did it. Now we might help out here and there. So it's full of this idea of justice and, and righteousness. And then Jesus comes along now and says, hey, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this is this idea of this restorative justice. They're hungering and thirsting for this restorative justice. They, they, they desire to see God's just standards established and obeyed. And we know that that's what Jesus means because Luke helps clarify it for us. So we'll save that for when we get to the gospel of Luke. We know that he's not talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, meaning, you know, personally being pious. You went to church today and you prayed and, and you even closed your eyes and you were really spiritual. Mm-hmm. He's talking about people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. Secondly, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Mercy is something that's given to people who are in need. Why are you merciful? Because I see need out there. And I see people who have this need, and I'm going to give them mercy. And then blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
And what, the, what it means is that when you're pure in heart, you're going to seek to do God's will in everything that you do. And, and when you do that, you're going to see God in the middle of it because that's what God does. And then, of course, you have the final two where God blesses those who pursue peace. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God, those who strive for harmony in life uh, with others. And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of right, righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reality is you're going to suffer because when you do restorative justice, the people who are empowered, who create that injustice, don't like it. Mm-hmm. The reality is you're going to come into conflict. You know, we think of, I, I know for myself, I always thought of, oh, those who are persecuted because of right, righteousness means I'm out there preaching about Jesus and some mm-hmm. government doesn't like it and they're going to, you know, put me in prison for it. Well, actually, it might just be the corporation that you're protesting against right now or the people who are, let's say you're working in the Philippines and you're working to help get girls out of the brothel mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Well, guess who's going who's gonna to bring you a, a persecution? It's not going to be the government right now. It's going to be well, maybe it is the government because they're helping working for the, the, the guy who owns the shop. That's, I think, what ha- was happening here. So when he says he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, what he means by then is, is everything in the law is being fulfilled. As we discussed last time, the Ten Commandments are really about justice. It's about the sake of the oppressed. And that's what Jesus come along to say is, when you live the way I, I command you to live, you won't murder. And therefore, those who are weak and inferior don't have to worry about being murdered. When you live the way I live, you won't commit adultery. And therefore, you don't have to worry about your wife being stolen from you because you're poor and inferior to someone who's society in, in a more leveraged position against you. Does that help? Yeah. When, and even when you talk about righteousness, you've been using righteousness and justice. Yes. And in English, those are two completely different words. Right. <laughs> uh, in Greek, though, they're not. One is just, it's the same root word. And it's, if it's used as a verb, it's usually translated as justice or justify or something like that. And if it's, if it's a noun, it's usually translated as righteousness. And it just has to do with the way things are supposed to be right. This is the way God intended it. Uh, And so one question would be though, should, especially in the good Protestant tradition, do, do we have a tendency to maybe read Paul into what Jesus is talking about here, or should we be reading Paul into that when he's talking about issues of, and I know that's a whole other uh, topic, but is that something that we we should connect or not connect? And we'll obviously save a lot of that for Paul when we get there. Uh, But what do you do with that? Is that a good thing or bad thing to do? Yeah, we we're misreading Paul also is what we're doing Mm -hmm. because Paul's also talking about this, this as well. Paul's talking about restorative justice and and restoration. So in the Hebrew, you have justice and righteousness and righteousness is the way things ought to be. It's the standard. And mm-hmm. we'll see that this is what Jesus means when we get to Luke. So kind of, if you're listening on, kind of go to Luke chapter six, and you'll see where Jesus talks about uh, the, the Beatitudes. And then he says, love one another, love your neighbors yourself. And then he says, it's like a good measure, pressing, uh, pressed down, shaken and, and overflowing. He's talking about actually having a just measure of grain when you're selling grain in the marketplace, make sure that you shake that grain down. So it settles down and then fill it up again to the top. Because if you let air pockets in there, you're giving person a person less grain mm. than you told them that you were going to give them. Mm-hmm. Well, what is that doing in the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Because that's what he means by justice and by loving your neighbor. It has this economic consequence of having a right attitude and right measures in the marketplace. So I guess mm. I kind of went to Luke already, didn't I? But nonetheless, so when you see righteousness in the Old Testament, it means that things are the way they ought to be. So Deuteronomy 15 says, there should be no poor among you. Ah, if there were no poor among you, there'd be a state of, of righteousness. Then the word justice comes along saying, well, justice is what's needed to bring righteousness about. So things aren't the way they ought to be. That means there's unjustness and we need to bring justice in to bring things back to a state of, of righteousness. So righteousness and justice kind of go hand in hand. So then when Jesus you know, when he talks about that, your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and Pharisees. What is he talking about there? Like, what do we do with that? Yeah. Well, for them, it was this, I think what you say is what Jesus is doing now. Well, actually, let me phrase that. Yeah. What do we do with that? Because how are yeah. they hearing that? Because we're hearing that as, you know, against the tradition that is probably has an incorrect view of what the scribes and Pharisees are. Right. So, and by the way, if you're not following us right now, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So we start with the Beatitudes. Then we started with, and we skipped over salt of the earth and light of the world, which we might get to later on, but if not, we'll definitely discuss next week. And then Jesus' command of, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then the next thing Jesus says is, 
hey, look, your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, we look at that and go, well, the scribes and the Pharisees were just, they weren't very righteous at all. And mm-hmm. actually, they were the, the pinnacle of, of righteousness in their society. They were the epitome of it, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees' attitude was, we know the law and we're going to help you follow the law so that you don't disobey it. We look at the Pharisees and go, they were just these hypocrites who you know, say, oh, by the way, you, know, you can't even spit on the Sabbath day because that's actually what working is. They actually thought that spitting tilled the soil and that was work. And so they were intentionally trying to make sure that they did everything they could to follow the law. And Jesus so, first, saying, so first century Jews are not calling Pharisees Pharisees as a majority. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah, that's something that we, we brought in later on. And yeah. even then we're probably misunderstanding what, the, what it means. What Jesus then gets out to, goes out and says, okay, I want you to be even better than that. And then what he does is he and we mentioned this a little bit last week, so looking at it now, but then he goes on to say, okay, I want you to understand that this would transform hearts. This is the Ezekiel 36 passage, that I'm going to send you my spirit, and he's going to give you a new heart. He's going to take away that heart of stone, which the laws were written on, and give you a heart of flesh. And the key, of course, as we mentioned before, is that we can only do these things, which ends in chapter five with be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, Mm -hmm. as we are empowered with the Holy Spirit. So he goes on to say, well, you heard that it was say you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, well, anyone who has anger or hatred in his heart towards his brother has murdered him already. So he's intensifying these laws. And again, when Jesus goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, it's not always in the Old Testament laws. Sometimes these are uh, quoting, traditional. Yeah, rabbis of the first yeah, century yeah, or tra- traditions. Quoting yeah. rabbis, quoting traditions, et cetera. So it's not always the law of the Old Testament versus Jesus in the New Testament. Sometimes it's tradition. So you shall not murder. Of course, that is the Old Testament, right? But he's going, I want you to intensify these commands because I want to transform you from the inside out. Now we again, again, stop and go, okay, as long as I'm perfect on the inside, everything else doesn't matter. No, because if we're perfect on the inside, then everything else definitely matters because it manifests itself in the way we are and the way we love our neighbor, the way we love our enemies and the way we treat other people as we want to be uh, treated ourselves. So even there, Matthew ends chapter five with a command to be perfect. Uh, and I, I know I struggled with this one yeah. for a while. I'd love to hear your take because, uh, and then I could offer my take and then you could either publicly yeah. rebuke me or you no. could say, oh, that's really good. I'm going to change my mind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we actually touched on this a little bit last time also. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is Jesus is not simply giving us this ideal goal that we can never attain. He's simply saying, this is what, I, this is what you're going to be. And the answer is, we're certainly going to be it. Now, depending on whether, like, if you're a Nazarene type of theolog- theological context, you say, mm-hmm. we can actually attain this now, and we're always striving for it, or, or whether maybe you have, like, a Reformed understanding, you say, well, we actually can attain it. And, of course, too many Reformed turns around and go, and therefore, I'm not even going to bother trying, because yeah, sure. I know a lot of them, and trust mm-hmm. me, they don't mm-hmm. have to. The reality is, either one of those, the answer is, that it's still, that's the goal. That's what we strive that's what we strive for. And Paul says this in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, is that we're striving for this perfection until we reach this, this fullness of growing in the likeness of Christ. So I would simply say, be perfect means imitate me, be imitators of Christ in all things at all times. Mm-hmm. So I, well, I think that that's what it like, that's the ultimate point. I think it's tying actually to loving your enemies. Mm. And so, which, which ultimately could say like, oh, God does that perfectly. So be like Mm. him. When you read 38 through 42, it's, you know, talking about retaliation and then it gives some more application in terms of saying, okay, well, you've heard it said, love your enemy and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, so he, he's, he's talking about that. And then it ends with, um, you know, don't, you know, talking about even the Gentiles, how they love each other. Mm. So you actually have to love your enemies therefore you must be perfect. And I'm putting the therefore before the you, and I, I, I don't know how it, how it lines up in the Greek. I would just say, you know, you therefore must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect in the sense of this is what your heavenly father does. He actually loves your enemies. Right. And you should do that as well. So I, I think it's actually talking about without doing a ton of study in it. I think it's talking about that's how God does it. Therefore, you should do this too, which is you could flesh it out and say, and to you know, ultimately be perfect just like he is. You could apply it to a number of things. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's right. I think that's actually correct. I think that's a good nuance of the text. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Mm-hmm. So the phrase son of has this mm-hmm. idiom of saying, 
you're a son of means you act like and behave like that mm -hmm. one, that of which you're the son of. So if we're sons of God or the father, then we do what he does. And I think mm -hmm. that's actually what he's saying. Yeah, very good. Okay, so let's move into chapter six now. So now Jesus talks about, you know, giving to the needy, and then he goes into prayer, you know, so you have, you know, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, these sorts of things. Why go here? That seems like a weird shift. So if, if we say that chapter five really is the content of the sermon, here it is. This is what I want you to understand. I want to be, your righteousness has to be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees do even better than they do. And that was something to be admired with this inner transformation, then what we see now is you say, okay, let's apply this now practically. Now, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting were three key marks of Jewish observance. This, for the Jewish people, this was, these were really essential, staple parts of who they were. That's why he chose these three things. For the Jews, of course, being away from the temple meant, especially if you live up in Galilee or especially the Jews in the diaspora, where they can't get to the temple, where they can't do sacrifices, these things, poor prayer and fasting, were actually marks equivalent to the temple. If you can't sacrifice at the temple because you can't get there, then you do these three things and you're good to go. And so when Jesus says, don't practice your righteousness before men, that's what he's talking about. So Jesus' answer is, look, when you give to the poor, that's a primary example of restoring justice. I mean, there should be no poor among you means the fact that there are poor among you means things aren't at a state of, of righteousness and we need justice. So give to the poor and that helps bring things back to a state of, of, ri of righteousness. Prayer, of course, is always attuning yourself to God's will for justice, which is not what we commonly think about what prayer means, right? Mm -hmm. Prayer is me telling God with all the things I need. It's just saying, no, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, help me to be in tune to your will for what justice means. And then fasting actually helps us identify with the poor and with the hungry. Now, what's interesting is this, and this is where the Sermon on the Mount comes into the story. If you look at the three sections of Matthew uh, 6, 1 through 18, verses 2 through 4, verses 5 through 6, and verses 16 through 18, and each one of those three things begins with the, with the word basically means when. When you give to the poor, when you pray, and when you fast. That begins Matthew 6, 2, Matthew 6, 5, Matthew 6, 16 then each one of them has a prohibition, like do not do this. Mm -hmm. When you give to the poor, when you pray and when you fast, don't do what the hypocrites do, because I say to you that they have the reward in full. And then he says, but you, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast. And then each of the three sections concludes with, truly, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. We know how the sections begin. We know the section, how the sections end. When they each begin with when, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, and they all end with, truly, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. That means 7 through 16, which is what we call the Lord's Prayer, is in the middle. It just makes this central. Okay, okay. if I'm going to talk to you about prayer, let me tell you what I think prayer looks like. And your prayer should be this way. Our Father, who is in heaven... And it's thy kingdom come, which gets us again mm -hmm. back to the fact that guess what? This whole thing is about the kingdom. One of the big things I would say there about, about these three sections that they're, Jesus is pointing out three things that were very commonly practiced in Judaism as marks of righteousness, especially when they couldn't get to the temple and saying, well, let's do it differently, not to be seen by men, but instead to be seen by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Hmm. And then even with that though, these three commands, I'll, I'll say MS commands when you do this, I, I'm assuming this isn't grammar standpoint. It's not like this is being put in the imperative mood. So right. it's not like go and do this. It's just assuming you're doing when you yeah. do this, which is interesting as well. Well, he's speaking to good pious Jews, right? I mean, yeah. People who have been trained by the Pharisees are, if you're in a Jewish culture, this is simply what you do. And what I'm telling you is I want you to do it differently. Now I want which, you to do it now with the aim of, let me come in one, one more thing, because yeah, yeah. why, why would he be pointing out they do these things to be seen by others? Because in the culture, when you do these things to be seen by others, you're viewed as more righteous than someone else. And that gives you more status in the society and the community. And that status in, in society mm -hmm. and community, yeah, the honor system, that status in society and community 
actually meant something for you. It gave you privileges that other people might not have. And Jesus' answer is, uh, we're not doing it for that reason. We're doing it for the Father's reason and for the sake of the, of the poor and the oppressed, not to gain ourselves an advantage within the culture. Yeah. And so one of the things that we come up against is if the Sermon on the Mount is for God's people today, even for the New Testament people of God, even though there's a first century Jewish context happening there, guess what? There's still an expectation that you fast. This isn't something that in our Protestant tradition, and I and I live in that Protestant tradition. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a Reformed Baptist, you know, but we often say, oh, well, no, we shouldn't do that because that's what the Catholics do. Or, right. you know, we're, we're not Jewish, so we don't have to do this. We put it off. It's like, no, this this is our prayer or this is like, this is, this is something to us. Like, this is something that you should be actually making part of your regular spiritual disciplines. Yes. And what's interesting about that is I think the reason why a lot of Christians or Protestants don't fast is because you don't see a lot of talk about it in the gospels Mm -hmm. because the religious leaders come up to Jesus and say, Hey, listen, you know, our disciples fast and the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but your disciples don't fast. Why not? And he says, because it's a wedding and I'm like the bridegroom and we're here. And mm-hmm. during a wedding, you feast during a wedding. So it's, this, it's the, the inauguration of the kingdom is coming. And the inauguration of the kingdom is the, the marriage of God to his people. And I'm God and you're my people and we're having a feast. But then he does say, but there will be a time when they fast. And I was, I'm going to leave and they will fast. But as a result of that, there's no fasting in the, in the, in the gospels. And as a result of that, we kind of think, oh, you know, we, we only preach the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when you only preach the Bible, you don't preach fasting very often. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, oops, I guess we missed that one. Because, yeah, yeah. it's when you, he's assuming that you will fast, that you are fasting. So let, let's actually like sidebar into this sure. for yeah, good, good point. N- even 90 seconds, you know, be pastoral for people listening right yep. now. Why should they fast? And what is a proper way of fasting? Well, let me, let me ask it to you. What do you say when that question is raised and how do you approach it? And then I'll, I'll comment after that. About, uh, about fasting, about like not from the theological, way. yeah, honestly, it's something that we just don't touch on a lot. Oh, so you know, okay. it, it's something that it has come up. Like when I've taught through the sermon on the Mount, we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. Um, and so it, it's, it's a similar type of, uh, background in terms of, you know, what's happening and, and why we should do it. But just from a, a pure practical standpoint, for me, I teach it as a way to, uh, really provide an opportunity <laughs> to have, to have a constant physical reminder of your mm-hmm. dependency upon God. Okay, very good. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. You, you're literally sitting there, even if it's just for a morning and you're used to having breakfast and you're just saying, I'm giving up breakfast for the morning or one day a week, I'm not going to eat till dinner or whatever. You know, you could get through it for a couple hours, but let's see, uh, let's be honest. You're getting to that point where you're hurting and you're having growling of, of, of a reminder. <laughs> and it's like, hey, each one of those things is like a, a clock, a, a, an alert going off on your calendar, telling you, reminding you to do something. Yeah. I would relate this to the same thing with prayer, by the way, because if we mm-hmm. make prayer something that we do so I can tell God all my needs, mm-hmm. we've perverted what prayer really is. Mm-hmm. But if I pray in order that I can become attuned to the kingdom of God, think about this. What's one of the most valuable assets we have in the American West? Our time. Mm-hmm. My time is money. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. when I pray, I'm taking time, that valuable commodity I have to say, no, I need you, Lord. And I want to know what your will is so that I can walk in accordance with your will. And I'm being attuned to God's will by taking time, which is extremely valuable to me. So also fasting now says, I also need food to survive. And I'm going to deny myself of this because I believe that you actually are the bread of life. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that before you, and I'm going to be utterly dependent upon you. But we're also going further now because our prayer was, God, I want your kingdom to come and I want your justice to be done. And now when I'm fasting, I'm aligning myself with those who are hungry Mm. saying, now I know how you feel, Mm -hmm. at least in a, in a very minor way, because I also know I got food right over there and I can go get it anytime I want, whereas you don't have that comfort. No. You don't even have that hope that this, that this hunger is going to end, depending on where you are, where you're at. And I think, what is that? One out of three kids in America go to, go to bed hungry every night. Mm-hmm. The food programs in the public schools are so important. Absolutely. And that's why in COVID happened, it was like, well, we got to get these schools open because these kids can't eat anyway. Yep. Otherwise, yep. it wasn't one of these, we want to break COVID and get everybody, you know, get everybody infected. No, we got to get these food programs out there, mm-hmm. everybody. So fasting would be a way of, so, of associating yourself with the hungry. Mm-hmm. Now, let's also note, some people can't fast because of medicines and, and yep. medical conditions. 
And so I would simply say, well, let me know one thing. Fasting biblically is uh, from sunrise to sundown. Mm-hmm. That was most likely the fast that Jesus uh, practiced. And even though he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, I think it's meant he fasted for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And during those 40 days, he didn't eat during the daylight hours. Yep. I think he did eat at night, but that's not another point. So I would simply say, well, look, if you could fast from, because of medical conditions and you can't fast from all foods or whatever, maybe you can fast from certain foods. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm not going to have any sweets or sugars or whatever things. I really, sometimes I might even fast by saying, I'm just going to have fruits and vegetables today. That's it. Just kind of, a, you know, a vegan type of diet today, just so I can keep myself attuned. And I definitely am I'm a, I'm a bread guy. I'm a pasta <laughs> person. I'm a meat yep. person. So that's, that's a big commitment for me. It's like, that's enough apples. I don't yep. <laughs> know if I want any more. Okay, I'll have a banana. Dang it. Wish I could have some, right? Can I have some peanut butter on my banana? Uh, maybe. It's a peanut. Is that, that's like a fruit or vegetable. All right. But uh, then I'd say, look, if you can't, if you can't fast at all because of medicines or whatever it might, it might be, or diabetes, things like that, then fast from something else. Uh, fast from time. Fast from Starbucks. Fast from uh, television. Mm-hmm. Fast from your iPhone find a way to say, I need to sit down and, and realize and recognize how other people in the world live and how they get along. Uh, and then I'd say this, fasting doesn't have to be for 24 hours. It, certainly it was from sunrise to sunset, but you can even go, all right, I'm going to go uh, from sunrise to sunset and I'm going to have a small lunch today. So I, I won't have breakfast. Um, if I get really hungry, I'll have an apple and maybe a small lunch, whatever. And then I'll wait till dinner and I'll have, and I'll have dinner like an hour or two later than I normally have, have dinner. That's fine. And if you can only make it till one o'clock, great. And then one of the things I learned from uh, Father Leo, whom I think you, you remember mm, Father Leo, mm-hmm. he shared with me one time that Orthodox fast on Sundays mm. until after church is over. And their church is three hours long, by the way. Okay. That's, a, that's a long fast because you have to wait for church to start and then you have to wait three hours. <laughs> And he says, because we want communion to be the first meal that we take each week. Oh, wow. Each week. Do, do they take communion every they week? Take, in, they take, the, okay. Yeah, certainly. Everybody but us Protestants do. Video. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Um, yeah. So, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. Just fasting. Even if you don't take communion on Sunday, just wait till you get home from church or mm-hmm. wait till noon or wait till one o'clock, whatever time you might get home and just fast on Sundays. And that's a really good way to do it. So just to close up this talk, especially since we're in there, because as you mentioned, COVID, um, I remember when COVID first started, we're almost coming up on that, the second anniversary of that, right? And there was questions of, will the stores be closed? And will they run out of food supply and all that? And I remember we had just finished up our church doing a, a, a six-week study on the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And recalling when we got to that section on, give us this day our daily bread. I remember having conversations with people as we produced a study material and whatnot about how literally using the example, if the stores were to ever shut down, like, I, I don't know how to, I, I don't mean this when I pray this, when I say, mm-hmm. give us this day, our daily bread. I remember at that point, this is a month before COVID thinking I could not leave my house for two weeks. And I have more than enough food in my house, in my pantry. I, yeah. I have no concept of what give me my, give me my day, my daily bread today. I, I don't know what that means. I don't rely on God for that. I, I've, that's not even anything that swirls around in my mind. And I need to do a better job of actually meaning what that says. And and how do I actually get to that point? Yeah. And I actually think that when we experienced that shutdown in what 20 beginning of 2020, Mm -hmm. that it actually manifested the injustices that occur because Mm -hmm. guess what? The poor couldn't run to the store that day and fill their pantry with food for the next two Mm -hmm. weeks because Mm a payday might be three or four days away and they don't have any money yet. Mm-hmm. And by the time they did, if you remember, the stores were literally empty. Oh, yeah. Right. There was, I mean, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my gosh, there's nothing in here. Mm-hmm. And what was happening was the people who could afford it were hoarding food. Yep. And now three days later, when the poor finally got their paycheck and had enough money warm. to buy a couple mm-hmm. days worth of food, there was no food there. Mm-hmm. And so it actually magnified the injustices that were occurring. So last week, when we finished up, you said that Matthew 6, 19 through 30 pointed out that that you thought that this was maybe the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. So do you want to look at that a little more and uh, explain why you think this? I think it's 619 through 34, more specifically. But I think what you have now is this is kind of the climax. I think if you look at the structure of the sermon, this is the climax of the sermon. Mm. So Matthew 5 lays it out. It's about the kingdom of God coming. And this is what kingdom of God people are like. They're they're blessed when they mourn. They're blessed when they grieve. They're hungry. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they're going to be persecuted as a result of that. Then he goes on to say, hey, look, you're the salt of the earth and light of the world. You're going to fulfill the role for Israel, which we didn't get into. And then he says, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm fulfilling it. 
And what fulfillment looks like is your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the way that plays out is murder is not enough. It's, you can't even have hatred in your heart because I'm transforming this heart. And ultimately, you have to be like God himself. And then the three ways it flushes out in terms of applications of when you give to the poor, when you pray, and when you fast. So now what we're at is, okay, let's flush this out in terms of the climax of it. And that is, look, the reality is when you live this way, you're gonna, it's going to be tenuous. When you live this way, you're going to have to utterly rely upon me for your needs because it may cost you. You know, when you give to the poor and you're not going to be doing it to seen by people, there's no benefit for you. And in this culture, I cannot express to you how significant it was that everything was that was done was done to gain yourself something in whatever it might be. Mind you, the poor really have no options for any of these things at all. Let's actually put a word picture to that in our modern context, because the really only modern context we might have is a politician, if he's running yeah. for office or in office or she, they're never going to go to an event without having a photo op. So they're yeah. not merely going to show up to the the local, the poor school in the inner city without the journalist there. They're not going to waste an opportunity right. to have a photo op. And it's, it's, it would be like that. And they would only be going to the school for the poor, probably for the photo op. Correct. Correct. And Jesus yeah. answers, no, I want you to go even when no one's looking Yeah, and it's not going to do you any good or it's not going to give you any advantage. And it probably won't get you any votes in your analogy. Right. And you're not going to get reelected, but that's mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. And then what are you going to do? Well, you won't have a job. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have a job, you're going to be, you're going to be trying to figure out how to do, how can I do both? How can I play both sides of this at the same time? And Jesus comes, comes along and says, you know what? If you do that, you're laying up for yourself treasures upon the earth and moth and rust eat that stuff up and it's destroyed. It's not any good. But I want you to lay out for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, mm-hmm. let's clarify. And we'll see this in the Gospel of Luke even more. Heaven is not some up there place of spirituality. Heaven is where God dwells. Mm-hmm. And lay out for yourself treasures in heaven, in his kingdom. Mm-hmm. In his kingdom where the poor are blessed, where the meek are blessed, where those who mourn are blessed. Lay out for yourself treasures in that kind of a kingdom. This kingdom that in Jesus' world exists now because of his coming. Yeah, it has it, been inaugurated. Exa- in, because of his exactly. Coming. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then he says, look. You can't serve two masters, verse 24. You can't serve two. And I'm telling you right now, this still hits me hard every time I think about it, because I know in the American church, we just do a really good job of serving two masters. And Mm -hmm. it's not just the American church. It looks differently in other cultures, but in the American culture, it's very apparent because the the materialism that's so abundantly present, it's just omnipresent. And we've justified the materialism all kinds of ways. We justify not giving to the poor for all kinds of reasons and things of that nature as well. But Jesus' answer is, look, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll despise the one and hold to the other. You can't serve God and, and mammon. And then what you have then in verse 25 and following now is, okay, look, here's the way it's going to flush out. Don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious, he says, about what you will eat, what you'll drink, or for your body as to what you'll put on. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. And look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't even gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to your lifespan? You can't. So why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory didn't clothe himself like one of these. Now, mind you, by the way, Solomon had all that wealth at the expense of everyone in his empire. Mm-hmm. He taxed them and taxed them and taxed them, and he accumulated masses of wealth. And she's like, nah, no way. But uh, verse 30, if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow's thrown in the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, a man of little faith? Don't be anxious then, saying, what shall we drink, eat, or what shall we drink, with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things, the, this is what everybody else does. But your heavenly father knows what you need and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And by the way, it's not, that's incredibly true. Isn't it? Each day has enough Mm -hmm. trouble of its own. Mm -hmm. We just came across in that the end of that section in verse 34, maybe one of many of the most misused phrases that you see in the Bible happen. It seems to happen in the Sermon on the Mount, but you have, um, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow uh, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And we oftentimes, you know, we, we read Bible verses like fortune cookies. So we just say, Oh, don't be anxious. 
And now all of a sudden, this is this command that is put on people. Hey, Mm. Jesus tells you to not be anxious. You struggle with anxiety. You're sinning because you're not obeying God. You're not obeying Jesus, right? And it's one of the many times Mm. we cherry pick something and don't pay attention. As someone who personally struggles with anxiety, and you and I have talked about that, and we're talking about maybe doing a show in the future about that. I know that this is one of these verses that I come across that I I understand the verse now, (laughs) but for years, passages like this haunt me because I feel like this guilt, like, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to be anxious. And I have this chronic anxiety here. What's wrong with me? I obviously don't love Jesus. I don't, whatever. What is the context about the anxiety that you're not supposed to have (laughs) that, that he wraps up chapter six with? Is it merely, Hey, if you ever experienced those butterflies, you obviously don't love God. Is, Is that what's happening here? No. And let's put it this way. It's a sense of saying, if you're only playing by the rules of the world so that you can survive and not trusting in the Lord, then you're missing something. But here's the reality, and that's this. Sometimes the Lord does let you go hungry and you do starve to death. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your enemies come around you and they actually do chop your head off. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure during those times when you're hiding you know, Jews in your closet because the mm-hmm. Nazis are mm-hmm. looking for them, you're going to be anxious that that little baby that's in there might make a noise. Mm-hmm. That's a normal, natural human fears because you're doing God's will. Not because you're afraid of what, because you're afraid, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not trusting in God. No, you're actually trusting in God. And it's put you in the situation where, you know, your employer fired you because you didn't lie or cheat and steal the way he wanted you to do these things. And so there's anxiety and those things are natural human emotions. He's simply saying, look, you're anxious about these things because you think if you don't play by the rules of the world, you just can't get anything and you're not trusting in me. And so you play by the rules of the world. That, I think that's what he's talking about. Being anxious, saying, I got to do things this way. I got to go ahead and say this on my taxes so I can get a big enough tax return because mm-hmm. otherwise I won't have enough money for groceries. And I was like, no, no, you don't have to do it that, that way. Trust in me. And guess what? You might not have enough money for groceries, but hopefully... The guy next door understands that I've sent him to help you. And sometimes they don't answer and sometimes you do go hungry. So yeah, it does happen. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and even to pull from something you said, you know, if you're, if you're hiding Jews in your house from the Nazis, like I'm immediately thinking of Corey Ten Boone and the hiding place, which uh, that's like on my Mount Rushmore of books. If you've never read the hiding place, that's seriously just an amazing book. That lady, I wish I could have lunch with her. But uh, you will, you will. Yeah, I will one day. Yeah. Uh, when she's hiding uh, Jews in her house and the Nazis are coming through, like, I guarantee she's, she's not sitting back saying like, it's all good. She's mm-hmm. probably freaked out. Right. Like, th- th- like what we would consider like from a physiological standpoint as anxiety, she's having that, she's having the butterfly. Mm-hmm. She's her, her blood pressure is up. The heart yep. rate is probably up when she's living in the concentration camp she's not just like, do, 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 you know, like there's times where she's really struggling with this stuff yeah. yet. She fulfilled this. Like sure. she, she lived out what yeah. this, this section means. So it's not merely, we don't want to look at it as Americans. We're like, Oh, here's the symptom you experienced and the symptom you're wrong. Now it's right. way bigger than that, that, that what we're talking about there. And the fear it was that Anne Frank lost several members of her family mm-hmm. or all mm-hmm. the members of her family, didn't she? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, yeah, I might be one of them too. Yeah, that, that's right. But you're not living by compromising so that you can go ahead and be preserved. That's the difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move into the very next verse, which might be one of the most misunderstood and misquoted <laughs> verses in the Bible. The, the top 10 with list that probably Look, has like 34 items on it. Honestly, yeah. what's actually funny is I, I've worked in music for many years and I did drum and I taught drum and bugle corps and competitive marching band. And, and I went and I would judge those competitions. And so every time I would say, I'm going to judge, like, this is the verse that like, this is like my life verse. Cause I, for years I judged marching bands competitions, but I'm, I'm supposed to judge not that I not be judged what's happening, yes. <laughs> but well, um, what is happening in this verse? Well, what's interesting too, is the people who judge you for not for, for judging yeah. are, are judging, like, are judging. It's like, wait a minute. You're judging others and you're not supposed to do that. Okay. I think you're judging me for judging others. So yeah. Yeah. It's circular. I and mean, actually, I think that this happens later on a few verses down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jesus actually like, you know, he can't hold by his own standard if that's what we're talking about. Well, yeah. Cause he even says, look, take the speck out of your, take the log out of your own eye yeah. and then take the speck out of your brother's yeah. eye. He doesn't say, Oh, just ignore it. 
Or how about this? Beware of false prophets. Well, how am I supposed to know if you're a false prophet right. unless I'm judging them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The entire New Testament is full of, yeah. of of judging and discerning. Yes. Jesus's context, I think, here is the context of who is qualified to get in and who's not qualified to get in. The context of the Jewish world in which Jesus was living in was one of which you're a prostitute, so you're out. You're a Gentile, so you're out. You're a tax gatherer, so you're out. Uh, you're physically handicapped, so you're out. And they had excluded people of being worthy of the kingdom of God. And Jesus answers, look, don't judge. And they're going to say, because by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What, what do you mean by a standard of measure? He has, by, by the requirements that you're saying, you must do these things to enter the kingdom of God. God's going to hold you accountable to a standard as well. And don't do that. Instead, the standard is repent and believe. And not repent and believe and wear nice blue jeans and a good hat and a good shirt. Oh, no, don't wear a hat. Can't do that. Uh, make sure your shirt's tucked in. No, it's repent and believe. And that's, and we now welcome in anyone into the kingdom of God without making these judgments as to who's worthy and who's not worthy. I think that's the context myself. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Well, I was going to say, there's a, there is a condition in a sense, like we're not judging you, but it's for like if you repent and you believe that's the the core of what it what marks off the people of god so what jesus is not saying is everyone is now the people of god right because he's obviously like there's people he's discontinuing and talking against in this in the right. sermon itself so it's not saying that everyone is there so you can't judge anyone it's just repenting and believing is the key to entering the kingdom that's right and then having a life that's marked off in a certain way yeah and i the thing about this is it's it's human nature it's human nature to say, when you're in the fifth grade and you have lunch at the school, you want to sit with all the cool kids. Mm -hmm. And it's human nature to say, that person's ugly and I don't want to be their friend because I want good looking people. It's just human nature to be around that, right? And I remember, you know, one of my, one of my kids, Jordan, is, is phenomenally exceptional at this. And you know my kids. Mm -hmm. And Jordan, I used to remember, look, hey, when you go to youth group, look for that kid that no one else is hanging out with mm -hmm. and kind of, and go, go make him feel welcome. And he was so good at it. It was crazy. And he just, he loved doing it. He loved making friends and loved meeting people. And that's the thing, you know, at the time there was a youth group with hundreds of kids coming every mm -hmm. week, but those hundreds of kids all have their friends. They all have their connection points. They all have the people I came here to be out to be here with these people. And then that new kid comes and there's no one to welcome them. And even though there's 200 or 500 kids in the room, then by the way, there was actually that number uh, in the room, that kid was all by himself. Mm. And so you have to say, hey, go find these people out. I work with the pastors in India. And one of the things I'm trying to tell them is, look, I understand the fact that money and resources is especially an issue for you. And so you're going to favor just naturally someone that might come into your community that has wealth because, hey, this guy can help. These people can't tithe at all. They can't afford to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you can. So Wow. And so you naturally gravitate towards that kind of a person. And Jesus is like, no, no, don't do that. Treat them all equally. Don't, in the book of James obviously speaks about this. We'll get mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. We'll get there in a, in a year, right yeah. before the end of the year. In, in a biblical year. Yeah. In a biblical year. Yeah. Pastoral year, whatever you might want to call it. <laughs> so it's judging and discriminating in order to show favoritism towards for one towards another, specifically who's worthy of entering the kingdom and who's not worthy of entering the kingdom. Yeah. And I would agree about Jordan. He's also very good at uh, fleecing me in fantasy football trades. Uh, so he's very generous in that regard. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah. Anyway, let's move. <laughs> one of the things that one of the phrases that we hear pop up is asking, seeking, knocking. Yeah. And in gosh, this, this needs to be a whole episode in its own. It, but, it has to be. Sooner yeah, later, yeah. Yeah. But uh, and more the, than one. Yeah, the whole series, the whole idea of what people might call prosperity theology or yeah. prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. It's, it's, it's more popular in, in charismatic movements, but I would even say it's it's gotten into almost every aspect of American Christianity. And because of that, now it's been exported to other areas of the world that's huge in Africa and in multiple other places. South America. Is this what this is talking about? <laughs> if you no. know, we just ask, seek and knock, and then God's going to provide because we spoke it into existence. I think, I, I think everything we've already said about the Sermon on the Mount now, uh, tonight or leading up into tonight, already says there's no way this is what it's about. So Matthew goes on to say, or Jesus goes on to say, asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knock and it shall be open to you. 
Everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it shall be opened. The context now, this is, so chapter 6, 19 through 34 was kind of the climax of the sermon. So the content of the sermon is chapter 5. The application is in the three parts in chapter 6. Mm-hmm. 19 through 34 then is the summary and the climax of it. And now we are at the conclusion. Okay, hey, by way of conclusion, don't be judging who's worthy, who's not worthy to come in the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. And then if you need anything to accomplish the work of the kingdom, ask. Because if there's anything God wants done, it's his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever you need, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be done. It has nothing to do with prosperity or uh, material gain. In fact, the whole idea of material gain is radically undermined by Jesus says, look, uh, you can't serve God and mammon. It's one or the other. And the fact that Jesus, the, the essence of the sermon is, if you seek these things, you're probably not going to get material gain. He's not saying, well, then just ask me for it. I'll give it to you. It's like, no, no, no. If you ask me for the things that you need to accomplish my will or the will of God's, the, the will of the kingdom, it will be given to you. Hmm. Now, mind you, by the way, this teaching, this prosperity teaching is actually becoming the most dominant strain of Christendom mm-hmm. as Christianity spreads through Africa and through the Orient and especially through Central and South mm-hmm. America. It's becoming very prevalent. And the reason why is because it appeals, because those are us largely poor communities. Oh, absolutely. Now, the problem with that becomes when they don't get this wealth and materialism, it's like, I must just be a bad person. I must yeah. not be righteous. I must not be asking hard enough, et cetera. It's extremely devastating to a people and to, to a community. Now, the people who are gaining from this are the pastors mm-hmm. and the churches and the teachers of these things, because mm-hmm. they need to show that they have material prosperity to show everybody else, see, you can get it too. But they got it at the expense of people who are already poor. Yeah, um, It's a travesty. It's a, it's a massive, massive tra- travesty. Yeah. So, and, and this is an instance, even going back to the judge not thing, where we could look at certain celebrity pastors, if you want to call them those and say, Hey, you know what you own like a $50 million private jet and you live on a, (laughs) you know, 20,000 square foot home and your annual income is this, and you have old ladies sending you all they have and they live dirt poor and they're sending you their money because of this, you know, buddy, you're, you're probably going to burn in hell. (laughs) Like you, you are not a Christian. Uh, and, And that's one of those times where it's like, What's the dividing line between not judging and saying, yeah, this, this person's a sheep or I'm sorry, this person's a wolf in sheep clothing. Like do not follow this person. Cause that person is like just fleecing you. Well, I certainly think the person's worthy of a rebuke. Mm-hmm. I'm not personally going to say you're going to burn in hell. I'm going to say, yeah, your theology is really bad or your application of your theology is really bad. And as far as a justice is concerned, it's radically unjust and you need to be defrocked or whatever that might be. I can't be defrocked because you're probably not in a denomination of such a nature, Yeah. but you, you need to be removed from the pulpit. You need to be removed from your position of authority. You're making a mockery of the church and society and the culture, uh, and you're doing great harm and great damage. I'm not sure that your heart's right before God, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it is or it isn't. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I, I do know people that, uh, have met some of these individuals and say, look, the guy's heart was really good. Mm-hmm, His theology mm-hmm. was just really bad. Mm-hmm. So they're not preaching the gospel. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they aren't, but that doesn't mean that they're not saved. And sure. that doesn't mean that the people in their movement aren't saved. It's just extremely corrupt and extremely damaging. I, I would say this people who come into the kingdom for that reason only are probably not coming into the kingdom because that's the king to enter the kingdom. You must, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the pe- these people are doing. And it's one of those things I'm writing my, my series of blogs right now is about the church and I'm going to get there and it'll take me about six months. But um, one of the questions is this, how did your church become big? Because I think if you teach the gospel of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, love your neighbor as yourself, it's simply not attractive. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't move and doesn't work in people's lives. And I think sometimes the church goes out and meets people where they're at and they minister to a community because maybe it's a wealthy church and they have a lot of money and resources and they go out to a poor community and they, they, they meet these people who are in need and they minister to them and they bring them in. Okay, that's cool. Great. But I think 
a lot of American Christianity, especially these churches that are really large, got large because they appeal to people's wants and desires, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is the antithesis of the gospel. Yeah. And I think a lot of churches that are really small are really small because they're still appealing to people's wants and desires. It's just that those wants and desires don't match up with the rest of the culture. So nobody yeah. else wants to come into the community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not just a big church thing. It's a small church thing too. Yeah. But I do think there are a lot of pastors out there and a lot of churches out there doing a lot of good things. There's a lot of churches out there doing a lot of really good things and they're struggling mm -hmm. because the church next door, well, they have a massive children's, children's mm -hmm. ministry and they can't compete. Mm -hmm. I get it. If you're a parent, sure. But the danger is that you're teaching your child to not sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Hey, I want you to go to this church so you'll like it. And maybe you'll stay in church all these days. Mm -hmm. I think if you go to that little church over there, right next door, where that pastor is really going to care for you and shepherd you. And it might not be fun. Your child might learn what self-denial is yeah. and, and they might never want to come back together again as well, but which one's better mm -hmm. a church where they never learn to deny themselves. And it's always about me. And did they really actually become a Christian or not? And again, I'm, I don't know the answer because I don't, we just don't know the answer, but yeah. I think that's part of it. It's the saying, what you win them with is what you win them to. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're moving along. We're at verse chapter seven, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is uh, the law and the prophets. Another one of those famous Bible verses, uh, maybe misused or maybe just misunderstood. It's probably deeper than we think. There's probably a good ethic in there, which is probably usually how it's, it's, just, it's, usually, it's usually understood as moralism, right? Do under yeah. others as, and anyone could, you don't have to follow Jesus to do this. You could be a good whoever and, and believe this, but what is Jesus actually saying here, especially since he's tying law and the prophet, something we haven't heard since the beginning in chapter right. five. So there's your inclusio. Mm -hmm. So in chapter five, this is the law and the prophet. Don't, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And and which is basically the beginning of the sermon because the Beatitudes kind of is like a prologue. And then here's your end of the sermon. That is, this is the law and the prophets. And the law and the prophets, as we mentioned last week, when we went, went, to the, went through the 10 commandments, it's about doing justice for the sake of the people who are oppressed. Now, the problem that we have, I think understanding this passage well, or this verse well in our culture is the fact that we have this very distinct and large middle class. In the ancient Roman world, you don't have a middle class. You have a poor and an oppressed, mm -hmm. and your neighbor doesn't have any bread today. And if you give them bread, that means you might not have actually enough. You're going to have to go with a little bit less. In that context now, this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Treat others. Hey, that day that you don't have enough bread, well, somebody else is going to give to you. And, and that's what happens, by the way. This is how, exactly what happens in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. It's exactly what they're doing. They're giving to each other or three, four, or four and five in specific, right? In the book of Acts. As everyone had need, they, they were giving. So think of it in that context. I think it makes a lot more sense than, well, you know, I'm not going to be a jerk to him because I don't want him to be a jerk to me. It's like, well, no, think about the person who has nothing. And think about what happens if you had nothing. And the problem is, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I can't think about me having nothing because I do. I mean, if I lost my job or my source of income today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got money in retirement account, or I could sell my house and move to an apartment and take a mm -hmm. little bit of equity. We have, we have means mm -hmm. of providing for ourselves. But think about the fact that 90% of the Roman world lived on a daily subsistence uh, lifestyle. And 30% of those, you know, one third of those lived on less than that. And now the other two thirds who have only enough food to get by for today I'm asking you to give them some bread. Mm -hmm. And that means you actually don't have enough food yourselves, but that's what, in that context, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. Now yeah. it becomes, I think, a little bit more real. Well, and to only, to only look at it as I need to treat people one way because that's how I wanted to be treated or whatever. And if it's not viewed uh, consistently with the rest of the sermon, it really is only like a quid, a, a quick pro quo or something. It's, it's something like I need to get this and that's why I'm going to be good for you. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's uh, symmetrical you, that way. Then yeah. you only do it for those people who do it back. Exactly. Where Jesus is like, don't do it, whether they pay you mm -hmm. back or not. Mm -hmm. In fact, do it. The ones who can't pay you back even better. Yeah. Do it for them. That's why I'm saying this is revolutionary. And the difference is this is what my kingdom looks like. My kingdom looks like dying for the sake of the other, 
-hmm. Whereas the empires are built by killing so that I can have more. Mm -hmm. Last time we talked about how Jesus closes the sermon uh, with this idea from Deuteronomy Mm -hmm. that there are two options. Uh, So in light of these two options, choose the good one, choose life. How how does that fit into what's happening here? Is is this the significance of something that we're seeing in the end of this uh, sermon? He's now saying, okay, look, here's the reality. Then there's, there's a narrow path and there's a wide path. And the narrow path means it's hard. And the wide path is wide and it's easy. Well, choose the narrow path. And I still keep going back to the fact that, that when we look at the parable of the sower, why do we choose the wide path? Well, because hmm. it helps me financially and economically or it mm-hmm. materially, or it helps alleviate suffering. Those, the reasons why we choose these other paths are usually because of power or comfort or material prosperity or to alleviate suffering. And just like, no, guess what? The narrow path, it's going to be the way of suffering. It is, but choose life. And the good tree bears bad, good, good fruit. And the bad tree bears bad fruit. You'll know a tree by its fruit. And so look for it. But the reality is, is good fruit means laying down your life for the sake of the other, sacrificing, giving to the one who has nothing and without asking for anything in return. So again, it's, it's this upside downness that I think we've, we have distorted. And so, and the reminder of the false prophets come in sheep's clothing, which reminder is, guess what? They profess and appear to be Christian. And this is mm-hmm. significant for the rest of the New Testament now, because the rest of the New Testament is addressing false teaching and mm-hmm. false prophets in the churches. Mm-hmm. And they all look good. And if you look at the prophets, what do they say? They say the things we want to hear. Yeah. My political party is the right political party. Mm-hmm. My political, my personal views are the right views. My ethnic identity is the right eth- identity. You know, my economic status is the right, whatever it might be. We listen to those prophetic voices and Jesus answers, look, they might sound Christian, but no, no. And, some, and usually they're not that clear about what they're saying. <laughs> Sometimes they might be, especially when, when it comes to politics, yeah. but, but especially when it comes to ethnic issues and all that, they're not going to come out and say that, but it's like, okay, what is the tone of what they're saying and what's the consistency of what they're saying? And is that why you're attracted to it? So there just needs to be a lot of discernment from the people of God. And that's what you see throughout fleshed out in all the letters that will, we'll get to that eventually. This is the point that first John is making and mm-hmm. Jude and, and all these things like, Hey, congregates, be aware of, of who's leading you, be aware of what's happening in your congregation. Cause there's going to, you know, there's going to be people who came out from us and guess what? They were actually never from us. Uh, th- this is a major issue that's happening. Yeah. 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 And again, good fruit, it's so easy to go, well, our church is doing all these good things in our society, in our community. It's like, well, yeah, and that's great, but is it really actually reflecting Jesus or not? And I'm mm-hmm. not saying it isn't, or it, I'm, just, I'm just asking the question, is it really reflecting Jesus? Because what did Jesus look like? Mm-hmm. He looked like a guy on a cross. Mm-hmm. He didn't look like a man in, a, in the pulpit that has all these glitter and da, 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 da. They look like a guy on the cross who died and sacrificed, even though he was the divine Lord of all creation and could summon 10,000 angels at a, at a whim, he didn't. Hmm. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I just don't think we have enough cross-bearing lives being manifested. And I think the ones See, here's the problem, and that's this. See if I can explain it this way. When you when you live that cross-bearing life, as, even as a pastor, especially, and a lot of churches are solo pastors, right? One pastor, mm-hmm. maybe two, or maybe a staff member underneath them. When that pastor lives that way, people in the congregation are going to take advantage of him. Mm-hmm. It's just simply going to be the way it is. It's really hard to be in leadership and to lead and drive the congregation where they need to go because the people with voices and money and power who don't want to go that way, because it means they have to give up their money, their power, whatever it might be, they're going to speak up and make life miserable for that person, that man, mm-hmm. man or woman. And there's a lot of pastors out there that are doing really, really good stuff and struggling like everything because they just get taken advantage of. Yeah. I'm not saying that when you're living the way of the cross, just let people take advantage of you. I'm not saying let them take advantage of you, but they're going to. And when you retaliate, you become like them. Mm-hmm. And 
it's a fine line and it's, it's tough. And I can tell you right now, it's really tough. And then the pastors out there that are not having to fight those battles. Well, I'm not sure that you're fighting those battles because you gave in. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answers. A, a lot of the blogs I'm writing right now, it's like, I'm not telling you what the answers. I'm just telling you what I think a lot of the questions are. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know this one's not right. And that one's not right. That one is right, but I don't know how to get there, but it's, it's a struggle. And I just think, you know, that when we look at the church today, I know too many people that are disillusioned. I know too many people that are disillusioned by Christendom and by Christianity, because what they see is a bunch of people that look no different than everybody else. They're just taking advantage of so many people. Mm -hmm. And then the ones who really want to follow Jesus are just like, this is, this is a bunch of crock. And it's like, no, the real Christ is actually there, but you got to look harder for him mm -hmm. because the real Christ are the ones who are silently, lovingly sacrificing their lives for the sake of the other. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, uh, things kind of come to a finality here where there's this challenge that's given everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them like... Like it, it's, it's this culmination. How does he wrap this up? Yeah. And the answer is Jesus is the rock, right? G upon which the church is built. And if you do these things, you're going to be like a wise man who built this house. And the word house is often the temple upon the rock. That's Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And no matter what happens, the rain, the floods, the winds, they're not going to, that house is not going to fall. But when you build your house upon the grain, well, upon the sand, it's going to fall. So I got two verses to look at Isaiah 28, verse 16 says, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Second mm. Samuel 22 verses two and three, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. That is this total dependency upon Christ and doing it his way, which is to lay down your life for the sake of the other. You know, and maybe we'll put some links in the, in the show notes on a couple of good resources. If you have any to throw them out my way before I get this posted, Vinny, but I think we're missing the kingdom. So much of the Christianity mm -hmm. that I was raised in mm -hmm. is, is just misunderstanding what the kingdom really is. And, and we're missing the mark. Now that doesn't mean that everybody's like damned or condemned to hell or whatever. I think a lot of people in the churches really want to know what it's actually about, but no one's actually leading them. Yeah. Hey, that was no, that's easy. all. That was that's easy. easy. Seriously. Come on. Man. <laughs> but that's like Why? 10 minutes, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 An hour and 16 on my clock right now. <laughs> oh, well. So that's going to be edited a little bit. Let's see how, yeah, the, how this goes. But uh, anyway, this is a good series. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, next week we'll be popping in. How, how many are we going to go in Matthew? Are we going to go so longer than four? We're going to do four? six. Yeah. We're yeah. going to do six. Next week, we're going to have uh, Dr. Bruce Fisk on. That's going to be fun. And that's going to be great. And Bruce is, is really bright and uh, a professor from uh, Westmont College, uh, now working at Network of Evangelicals from the Middle East and doing a lot of work. I work alongside of him in a couple of different projects and great, great fun. He's going to have some really good insights. And then we'll do one more week after that, where you and I get back together to kind of we still got what 23 chapters of Matthew left. Yeah, so right. we're we going to have to do the 23 chapters in one week. We're going to save like the end, what we call the passion that we'll save those chapters for Luke and John. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're going to get into Luke. And if you think we've gotten started, by the way, wait till you get to Luke, because yeah. Luke is going to take all the stuff that we've been talking about now and put this all together because Luke is written really quickly. Luke is written to a Roman elite official in Rome. Mm -hmm. We will see everyone soon. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.